Okay, um, morning everyone. And uh, today we have a few esteemed guests with us to talk about a topic that um, I don't think a lot of uh, panels have covered before, which is the importance of due diligence in, in venture deals. Um, so before we start, I'd like to give a quick introduction of myself, and then I'll also allow my, my guests to also introduce themselves. So um, I'm Joseph, I'm investment manager at Burda Principal Investments. Um, and Burda Principal Investments uh, is focused on series B investments into consumer tech companies uh, opening in Southeast Asia. Um, that's what the Singapore team covers. We also have an office in Munich and an office in London, which covers the European and US deals. Um, so I'll hand over to, to Yongcheng from Teaming to also give a quick introduction of itself. Okay, yeah. Hello, everyone. Yeah, so uh, I'm Yongcheng, I'm from uh, Teaming Ventures. So we are a Chinese-based uh, VC founded in 2006. So uh, we currently manage about uh, 5.3 billion USD of uh, assets. And um, thus far, we have backed over like 350 companies of which um, over 110 have uh, listings on various stock exchanges or we have exited via M&A. Yeah, so um, some of the names that you guys might be more familiar with would be your uh, Xiaomi, Meituan Dianping, uh, Bilibili. Yeah, so historically the fund has been just uh, China focused, but roughly around three years back, we decided to expand um, our coverage to uh, Southeast Asia and India. So uh, in these, these two large regions, uh, we mainly cover TMT investments. Um, Stage-wise, we are quite multi-stage, but you would typically find us investing across uh, Series A to C. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, that's it from me. Okay, um, thank you, Yongcheng. And um, maybe Evelyn would like to go next. Hi, uh, I'm Evelyn from General Atlantic. I'm part of uh, the fund's uh, Southeast Asia team based in Singapore. Uh, as a fund, we actually only have uh, a single fund uh, globally, uh, and it's been the same fund over the last uh, 40 years. Currently, we manage about 34 billion in AUM uh, across 120 portfolio companies. Um, within Southeast Asia, we have a team about, of about seven or eight people here. And uh, within the region, uh, companies that we've invested behind uh, include uh, C, which is a Garena and Shopee, uh, Mitra uh, Boga Adi Prakasa, which is uh, Starbucks in Indonesia, as well as Rongguru. Uh, great to be here today. Uh, thanks for having us. Okay, and last but not least, um, let's have, we have Dawn from Everest and Marshall uh, to give a quick introduction. Hi. Hi, this is Dawn from Everest and Marshall. We are a global uh, a professional services firm. The easiest way to, to, to understand who we are is to think a big four minus audit. So globally, we are the biggest global transaction advisory service firm outside the big four. And um, what, what makes us different or make us special is that we take pride in doing integrated due diligence with a very hands-on and senior-led approach. So globally, uh, Globally, we are a very well-known name, and in fact, we are the number one restructuring firm in the world. All right, um, thank you. So uh, let me kick this off by giving kind of a, uh, a overarching uh, agenda or overarching theme. So uh, the, I mean, we're talking about due diligence, important due diligence today, but to backtrack a bit, um, I think I'd like to like to kind of uh, give an observation that I'm sure most of us here have, have noticed that um, liquidity has increased significantly in the past few years. I, I think all of us can shake our heads here, uh, nod our heads here <laughs> in agreement. Um, GPs uh, now have sitting a lot of dry powder uh, that needs to be deployed within like, the first half of the fund life, right? So that, that, that's the new reality. Um, I mean, at least, at least before 
at least well into the early part, first half of 2019, I, at least from, from me, I observed a rush to do deals, right? And, and in this rush to do deals and deploy money, as, uh, and also in this rush to amass term sheets, especially for, L, uh, for GPs that, that just done the first close of the fund, they're trying to do a, trying to get to the, the desired fund corpus. They, they like to amass term sheets to show that they have a good pipeline and then they, they, they get to the corpus, right? And, and, and in this rush, um, there's the tendency, uh, I'm not, I, I don't say it's always, but there's a tendency to skip third party due diligence. And I want to say third party due diligence, uh, not the due diligence that's done by the investment team themselves. And, and I think the, the purpose of this podcast is to, to kind of discuss um, what are the pros and cons or, or the, the, the costs and effects of like skipping third-party financial due diligence at different stages, right? Whether it's an early stage investment, a growth stage, Series B, Series C investment, or even late stage, which General Atlantic is uh, very active in. So, um, I'll, so with that as the as a starting starting point, um, I'd like to kick off with maybe Evelyn from General Atlantic to 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 give us her thoughts around this. Sure. So, um, uh, as, as you mentioned uh, earlier, we tend to invest uh, in late stage businesses uh, in the growth equity space, uh, but increasingly our minimum track size is also, uh, we've brought our minimum track size down to about 25 million. So that allows us to uh, invest slightly earlier than what, where we historically did, um, call it 40 years back. Uh, and I think you know, within, uh, within our due diligence process, uh, we almost always would have uh, uh, worked with third-party uh, due diligence uh, service providers across the world, uh, and really depending on which kinds of uh, which sectors we would, uh, you know, try to go deeper into a specific uh, concerns that might uh, surround those sectors uh, accordingly. Probably, uh, you know, just to kick it off, one of the factors uh, that we look for the most is to be able to discuss um, the business very truthfully and openly with the founders. And I think that's a, a, a good start uh, in terms of, you know, particularly when some founders are a bit uh, cagey, for example, then we will start to try to figure out maybe if, is it because uh, the company is much more nascent, so uh, do not yet have some kinds of a a business intelligence software to track uh, the data, or maybe you know there might be something else that we need to uncover uh, a little bit more. Uh, and I think, uh, yeah. So, okay, maybe maybe Yongcheng can can go next uh, to share to give us some of your thoughts around this. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with Evelyn on uh, what she has said. I think similar for us, uh, financial due diligence is always uh, a must. Yeah, I think even in certain deals that we come across whereby we were uh, either, you know, uh, we, we can't do financial due diligence or for whatever reasons, then um, I, I think we'd rather pass on the deal than actually do it, unless there's a very specific concern, right? Like, for example, if the deal just closed a month ago and they're doing a plus round, then we I think we might be open because like the, the, the FTD report is still quite recent and still um, holds uh, validity. Yeah, but aside from that, I think it, it will be quite tough. Yeah, so um, I think, you know, uh, when it comes to FTD, the access to management as well as your downline reports are actually quite important because um, it, it shows the ability of the management to, you know, uh, to want to engage, right, on like what you can say on a more truthful basis. And I think without that, uh, then um, the basis of the financial due diligence wouldn't be there anymore. Yeah, and I, I think during the due diligence process, there's also a lot of like, you know, uh, 
qualitative and quantitative factors that uh, if you like gives the band the multiple versions with different numbers, uh, what's the underlying reasons? Is it indication of fraud or is it because their backend team is unable to support it either from a manpower perspective or an infrastructure perspective? So I think a lot of these factors uh, that, that we have to consider is not um is it, is a mixture of both science and art, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So I mean this these are just my thoughts on that. Yeah. So that's definitely agree with Yongchun here. I mean, we are, we are both Series B investors. So the way we view um, third-party financial due diligence is similar. And I think in the case of Burda, we even do third-party tech due diligence because uh, we don't know what we don't know. We are not, um, at least the investment team does not have any engineers or developers or product managers. So we, we, we will lean on someone else's expertise to give us a, a, a third-party objective view of, of how healthy or what the gaps in the tech stack of the company. Um, and, and that would be important and I think we can go into this uh, later on. Uh, but uh, I'll first like to also get a view from the other side of the table, uh, Dawn as a, as a third-party financial due diligence provider on, on some of the observations she has, she has had so far and, and her thoughts as well. Yeah, thanks Joseph. I'm so glad that you all feel third-party due diligence is important. <laughs> Right. Um, so in what I've seen is um, where, where, where I find the investor appreciates third-party due diligence most is first, it validates what they believe or it disproves what they have uh, uh, already, the hypothesis they already have before coming to the table. A case in point would be, um, I, I was looking at, a, I was looking at a tech company and there is this certain revenue that has been reported for the last how many financial years. So it's been growing, but when we say, what, what does it mean? And can you show me how it trades from the financial reported number, which is an outcome, to your operational, like how does your operation translate to the revenue? What is the link between operational and financial? So this kind of conversation is possible, but very difficult for a principal like, like you know, the investor, like, like yourself, to have a conversation with the financial controller because they will be intimidated. And also your, your time can be better spent somewhere else. Sometimes people get, when, when it's a third party due diligence, there's a sense of neutrality or, oh, that's just my job, you have to explain to me. So that helps to validate or disprove the hypothesis coming in the table. Is a num number one, is the revenue true? Another one would be, um, Unless there is an intention to fraud, what I found is um, in this part of the world, most of the company, I mean, most of the, unless you have really large company that, that are like in a range of half a billion dollars, most of the company, when you're talking about check size of 15 million or even 60, 70 million US, they are still first generation. They started off as having the indigenous advantage and they build the business the way they are. So they have, they know the business so well that in their head, there's a subconscious understanding that they somehow don't verbalize to the other side on the table. So as a financial due diligence, right, I always tell my team have to be conscious and pick up all those subtle cues to say maybe he's saying something because he thinks it is or he thinks it should be. Maybe it's not like that when you actually talk to the person below. How to, it is a science and an art, how to tell someone you're wrong but not saying it you're wrong and trying to bridge it and come to a story that ah actually what i mean is this. yeah 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 of course what you mean is this and get the true numbers coming out of the various stakeholders and the third thing is also like um 
typical in uh, indigenously the advantageous uh, founder, right? He will hold his number very close to his heart. Not there isn't a single person in the usually there isn't a single person in the organization who know everything. So and so so the ability to find who is the owner of what information and make sure that they talk to each other. Usually they don't. Um, how to link disparate and link set of data together? Checking you know thinking on the investor behalf. To, to make sure whether the different sets of number agree or disagree, but there is a good reason to, yeah. Whether it's fraud or is it because there's a good reason, they're just being captured a different way. So I think due diligence is um, important for these three, regions, uh, three re reasons. Say, can you trust the number? If there is a difference, do you know why there is a difference? And what someone tell you, is it because it is like that or because the person genuinely thinks it is like that? even though it's not, it's not is. Mm. Yeah. Maybe just quickly adding to the point that Don has just mentioned, uh, you know, beyond looking at, uh, like Don mentioned, right, beyond looking at uh, whether, uh, you know, validating or disproving uh, our initial hypothesis of the business, uh, another intention of uh, when we are doing financial due diligence is to understand where the, the gaps and what are the opportunities mm -hmm. we can work on and uh, help us build an upside case of management. So, for example, uh, there may be a business uh, where, you know, say the front-end uh, business development team may not be are very strong and we, we recognize that and we know that uh, post-investment that should be one of our key priorities uh, in the first uh, call it six months uh, to be able to uh, help them get to the next level of growth. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah. So I think I just want to add on to this point. Yeah, the, it's, it's very often, in fact, all the time, I've seen that the, what, what the investor need for the financial model never ever exactly exists in the target company. So, so it, it always the case of, I uh, have to use a mix of what's readily available versus what you can create ad hoc on the spot. And very often the company themselves are not able to generate that level of um, um, financial that all KPI that you need with the level of confidence that, that the investor needs for their model. Um, I was looking at this um, company for all intents and purposes, the, the management, very successful business, has always looked at the margin on a unit dollars per volume basis. But if you want percentage, you know, we never track it that way. Yeah, so how to match things. So it's become an exercise of getting the cost ledger, the revenue ledger, make them talk to each other, get the margin, validate spot check, look at reasonableness, and then asking ourselves, should we look at average? Or is it the right way to cut the business? Is there a range? And if, if you look at the average, how many up you should be for positive, how many down should be for negative? So all this question, it's not because the management is out to, to say something wrong, but they have never done it before. And if, if an investor press them, they will say something which they think is reasonable, but they don't have any clue whether it's correct or not. So mm. due diligence is a heavy crunching also to kind mm. of connect the dots. And um, a lot of time our recommendation involves, oh, we think you need to invest in X, Y, Z because otherwise you won't be able to deliver on the outcomes you set, you set out to do. Mm. Okay, this is interesting. Um, thanks, Yifli and Dawn. Um, so I, I, I particularly, I mean, the, the, the idea that using a third-party due diligence provider as a shoe resonates with me. I can, I can comment on that because I've been on both sides of the table. So before I was a venture investor, I was a, I was an EY providing FDD. Um, and, and our clients always use us as a shoe because they want to preserve yeah. 
the relationship with the investee. And I mean, that's important, right? Because uh, after the yeah. due diligence is over, we still need to work very closely with them and we don't want, we don't want to, to bruise any egos or we don't want to, 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 to offend anyone in the management team so that we can continue working very closely. So that, that, that really resonated with me. And, and secondly, and maybe Yongsheng can chime in here, I think, I think before we give out the term sheet, there's always a, a, a premium given to speed because most rounds for good companies are very competitive. So we have, I think in terms of confidence level, we just had to get to like a 70%, maybe even 60% certainty. And then we get into the term sheet and we try to plug in the remaining with the third party, right? So I, I mean, at least that's how I see it. I'm not sure how you think about this, Yongchun, because in the Chinese space, I'm sure it's very competitive. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the process is, is quite similar. Um, I, I think in China, we probably have an unfair advantage, but uh, out here in this market, <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think typically, um, like what you said, uh, we will do the, the initial commercial due diligence, uh, reach a certain level of confidence. I think uh, in the initial part, it will all be about the, the fundamental of the, the, the operational performance, as well as like um, whether we believe in the business model or not. And I think whether that will pan out in the next uh, five to 10 years. I think once we are able to reach that level of confidence, we're able to issue a term sheet. And after the term sheet, uh, that will come uh, financial due diligence as well as uh, legal due diligence. And, and in certain cases, even a, a more in-depth uh, commercial due diligence as well. Yeah, so um, I, I think we are pretty aligned in terms of like where the process lies. Yeah, so I, I think the FDD is really quite important. And maybe just to be on as to what uh, Evelyn and Don has, have mentioned earlier, right? I, I think the FDD is also a good uh, way or channel for the company to re realize, uh, you know, what areas they need improvement on. I think because the FDD not only looks at the numbers, right? But they also mm. look at the, the systems, the processes, you know, uh, whether the, the front end numbers flow smoothly all the way to back end. If there's a lapse, if there's a disconnect, you know, where is it happening and what they can uh, do to sort of like uh, improve upon it. Yeah, so I, I think the FDD vendor in this case, they are able to give, uh, I guess, what we call unofficial recommendations since they are not uh, selling systems and stuff. As a cost, even that they have seen so many companies, right? Uh, what system might work best in certain cases? Uh, and, and I think it's especially helpful whereby you come across companies uh, that are a bit earlier stage, probably even wouldn't encounter this, but you know, they don't have a CFO. So yeah. that's at most a financial controller in place. And he, I mean, he or she may be good at what, uh, he or she does, right? But I think there's also a lot of areas that uh, they don't know as well. And then we as investors, we might, we might not be that, uh, we might not be aware of as well. So mm -hmm. I think the FTD vendor really has a lot of expertise to sort of like uh, contribute in this particular aspect. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Yongchen. So um, I, I think a lot of the question that I get and maybe some, some in the audience who are founders have in their head is that uh, we'll be, I mean, investors have already done a fair amount of work, especially at the Series B and later stages in, in the commercial DD phase. Uh, why is there a need to do more DD? Uh, I, I get this question <laughs> over and over again. Uh, what, some of the founders even ask me, what, what is the value of you guys uh, doing more DD? Have you, haven't you looked at everything already? So I, I think at this point, I'd like to bring in a question of like, how much DD should an investor do mm. for Series A, Series B versus Series C and beyond? Uh, I think at least at least the, uh, the people here in this episode can comment on CVCP, CVC and beyond. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have anyone here that's a that's a early stage focus investor, but I think we can comment on the, the later stages. And, and and adding on to that, what is I think Don can chime in here. What is the standard scope of work of FDD for for a, a company that has post Series A and has some form of BI infrastructure and has already a kind of a 
proper finance team, and, and I mean, I think at least there's some of the basic basic expectations. <laughs> um, so maybe uh, Dawn is laughing. So maybe maybe uh, uh, I want to hear Dawn's... Yongchun and Evelyn first. I want to hear okay. Yongchun and Evelyn first. Um, so who who wants to go first? Uh, 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 Yongchun and Evelyn. Yeah. Uh, well, I would say ladies first. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think you know, uh, to your first question of your how much uh, DD and investors should do, or at least how uh, we have, or at least how I've uh, approached DD uh, historically is to think of think about what are the make or break hypotheses I need to uh, validate, and I think that could come in a couple of, uh, that would differ, uh, you know, very differently between different sectors, um, but. Preliminarily, uh, one, I would like to get some conviction of um, whether the books are clean and accurate, that there's no major risk that this business isn't what it uh, claims to be. Um, so if I see, uh, you know, 10 million of revenue on the books, it actually is 10 million of revenue uh, flowing through the system. Uh, secondly, mm -hmm. is also to understand uh, how sustainable the, the growth could be. So maybe it's uh, maybe there are a bunch of uh, say cashbacks uh, in the business, which uh, which is uh, attracting many new customers, or or maybe it might be a premium product that is uh, that has a much smaller addressable market uh, than you know a much more mass market product per se. And uh, finally, of course, uh, understand uh, how large the market is uh, for a particular product and uh, price point. So I wouldn't say that there is a very specific uh, you know list of uh, must-haves, but uh, by by and large, uh, I would say that we, we try to gear it towards uh, answering the broader uh, overarching questions. Sure. I, I think from my perspective, uh, uh, maybe Don can add more later, but uh, I, I think we can classify FDD into three particular parts. Uh, the core FDD would, which I, in my opinion, would comprise uh, you know, um, evaluation of the system and processes, as well as the, the three core statements. And then uh, moving on, you have the operational data due diligence. And I think lastly, the tax due diligence. So I think this will be the three main parts. So I, I think at the very least, you should actually be doing the core due diligence. And I think EFF uh, touched a lot on that as well. And I think the three statements here, um, a lot of different factors come into play, right? Like for example, when you look at the PNL, I think important part is actually the, the revenue recognition policy. Uh, because in, in the in the earlier stage uh, staffs, I think the focus is more on like the, the operational top line, uh, GMV and staff and, and, and growth growth. Right, and then whereas when you progress more to later stage, it's focused more on the profitability. Yeah, so um, I, I I think you know so a lot of aspects like you know whether we are able to reconciliate the, the GMV into the the PNL statements and all this is actually quite important. And I I, I think a lot of the the one-off adjustments have to be made as well because I think that's that's the point of the the core FDD, right? Like like for example, if if you have a, if you are selling through a telco, then uh, the, the your contract with the telco actually matters a lot, right? Especially if the telco uh, contributes a significant part of your revenue. So uh, if there's an instance whereby, you know, the, the annual contract with the telco is not renewed, but you're still recognizing the revenue, then um, I think to me, that's a red flag, right? But I think beyond that, you also have to understand, you know, what, what are the reasons behind uh, the, the, the staff not uh, renewing the revenue with the telco? Is it more of the staff issue or is it more of the telco side, right? And stuff like that. Yeah, so I, I think all these stuff are actually... Um, quite important as well as um, the, the balance sheet as well, right? Uh, a, a lot of uh, things that you need to take note of, like, you know, the receivables, the payables, whether there's any outside exposure to any um, counterparty. And if, if there is, like, uh, what's, the, what's, any, what's the particular reasons and stuff like that? Yeah, if you move from the cash flow, you know, what's the conversion cycle like? Uh, can you reconciliate the cash balance to what is being shown on the, uh, what is being shown in the bank statements and stuff? Yeah, so I, I think all these parts are, are, are quite important. 
Um, I think typically for us, like the, the core activities is uh, definitely essential, right? Uh, the operation data due diligence, uh, we, we can definitely uh, do it in-house, but often I think um, the FTD vendor will have a sector-specific expertise that they are able to contribute greatly, especially since they, sh they, they should have done more um, exercises across uh, multiple companies in this in a particular vertical, right? So um, yeah, they're definitely more professional than us when it comes to this. Yeah, and I think tax due diligence, uh, I, I think to us that's subjective, maybe more applicable for later stage companies, because I think for earlier stage companies, uh, a lot of these ones are actually uh, loss making. So uh, tax due diligence might not make that much sense. Yeah, but then again, aside from uh, just the corporate tax, you also have to think of like GST, VAT, and then evaluate, you know, how important that is to, to the company operations. So yeah, I think um, out of all these three, I, I would probably say uh, tax due diligence is the least priority. Yeah. So uh, yeah, my, that's my thoughts, yeah. Dawn, on to you. I think you have a lot to say. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I, you know, I, it's, it's the part I wanted to listen the most because every time when somebody sent me the RFP, I will have to scope, right? And very seldom the information given to, to me to scope is very cryptic. I have to listen to maybe a one like two sentence description and second guess what's the target <laughs> what they're doing and try to imagine so um there are two parts to 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 how i would answer it the first one is how do an FAE person like myself would scope and how do we pick what to focus and what not to focus so much so uh typically the process for me when i scope the work would be listen to your uh, conversation around what company it is and trying to hear from your tone like you know trying to see from the like why you want to invest in this company if and then i will do um, a, a research to try to spot i think you're investing in this company or, or largely i think this is a group of company that are likely to target or they are like that and i will try to gauge what is your investment hypothesis and what will be your pain points um, and it varies. I mean, that, the, the, the true consultant answer is there is no standard answer. But this is the entire process that I, I usually go through. For the case of, I've, I've done uh, my fair share of deal in loss-making tech company. Some are Series B, some are even Series E and F, you know which one. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so, so still loss-making. Uh, so the question becomes, um, what would be the break point or the pain point? What is your, so sometimes the investor will tell me straight away, sometimes they don't. But largely I see three buckets. The first bucket is totally loss making, but you want, but it's I think usually A plus kind of series, still loss making, but the, the, the revenue model seems to work. If this is the case, number one, uh, I think for you all the two most important would be is the revenue model that you are being told by the founder translating to the financial number the way that it should and do they make sense? So validating that the revenue model exists the way it is. The second part is ah, cash burn analysis. So these are the two that I work like anything. And back to the cash burn would be like with cost structure, customer acquisition cost and so on. So this I would say are the two must have. The rest of the stuff, um, Balance sheet, cash reconciliation are important, but they are not the star, but they are more of the supporting to make sure that my, my cash burn and my revenue are correct. So, so you know, there's a turn and there's a pull when it comes to the main 
lead and the supporting cast, so to speak. When it comes to series C and series E, F, when there's a profitability, um, I will, I usually will say, is it the growth that you're betting on or is it the sustainability of the margin that you're betting on? And the key question for investors like yourself would be, in which stage of the growth or the profit, pro profit, um, the profit profile, profitability profile that the company is in? Is it in a super normal profit? but going to go down or is it a rich and stable state? I think this is when I look at a company growth. So growth and profitability profile and your and the sustainability of the customer. So if these are the three broad buckets that an investor like yourself would look at when it comes to C and beyond, then uh, depending, if I look at the target and let's say education, education will have very limited synergy between various, it's just like one asset at a time, right? That, that, right, but you have you have you probably can can have very little synergy if you open one childcare, two childcare, three childcare because the cost center is you have a bit of saving only. Then the kind of focus I look at will be different when I look at revenue driver. But if I do an e-commerce company, ah, for every scale in dollars, you actually as long this is is about scalability, right? So how much? What, what is my GMV, my customer acquisition cost? What is the deepening the further impact. So depending on the question at hand, it will broadly fall into quality of earning, quality of net asset, and how you fund the business. But how the bullet point below each of these buckets are designed are totally different, depending on the sector and depending on what I guess is the investment hypothesis. Let's say you're investing in Vietnam. Most people don't talk about profit first. They talk about growth. So I will look at same store sale, growth, and so on. And in Vietnam, you, know, like you think about it's a country, but it's around 3,200 uh, kilometer of coastline. So, and people, culture, the way people live, the way they spend money is very different. So you can do very well in Ho Chi Minh City, but you will not be doing well in, in Hanoi because it's a different. So, you know, so there are different ways to slide and dice, but the theme doesn't change as to what would be the pain point? Why are you investing in this company? And to answer these questions, what are the things that I second guess that you need to put into your investment model and your board paper? So that's how uh, I scope all my uh, proposals. Okay, thank you, John. So I think um, maybe I'd like to touch on something that may be interesting for you. What is the value of FDD and, and you know, what is the price that we as investors should be willing to pay? <laughs> for me, right? I think you buy, when you get an FDD, you're paying for trust. You're mm. paying for trust. If, if, I think, um, and there's a big difference. If, if you, if you pay, when you pay for CDD, you're paying for a promise, a vision. But FDD, you want to say, yeah, I, have, I believe in the promise, but I want to trust that my starting point is correct. My first footing is correct. And I want to trust that I make the assumption about going forward based on the right starting point. So FDD is the trust. Um, that is the fundamental, most important. I can trust the number. I can trust that I get the right business model. I can trust that um, I understand why or how the company making money or whether the growth is sustainable. So trust is the number one thing in FDD. And sometimes I've, I've even got questions from investors asking me, Don, you think I should invest? I'm like, mm. <laughs> all right. Or they ask me, what do you think of the CFO? I'm like, <laughs> okay, we, we will off the record talk about those, but it will be more of um, where you, I think you can do better. For example, 
uh, the way things are being tracked. So manual is in someone's head. If the person doesn't turn up for work the next day, you're done for. So these are the missing gap, right? So there are things that I, I feel the trust come in, not because we know more than an investor, no. We don't know more than an investor. It's because we look at it objectively with our emotion. Whereas you spend years courting a company and you have your intuition, right? Your intuition make you sense whether a deal has legs or not. So some of this, you're not sure whether your judgment can be based on intuition or fact. So we come in with the element of trust so that you can trust that you make the decision based on the right facts. Mm. So um, maybe I'd like to give my view here. So my, my perspective on FDD, being on both sides of the table, uh, I was an FDD provider trying to give fee codes and now I'm an investor trying to push down fee codes. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I give a very objective view here. So I think uh, whenever we engage FDD provider, I think uh, I, at least I like to think of it as insurance. So what is mm -hmm. the value, what's the value at risk here? So if my check size is 10 million and there is a 1% risk that the founders are crooks and I lose all my money, then the expected value of the FDD is 100,000. And, and if, if the provider is charging me around that fee, then I think it's fair, right? And obviously mm. I try to bring it down and get an arbitrage gain, paper gain. But, but again, you know, you know, this is kind of like how I, in my mind, I price the, the value of a piece of FDD. As my check sizes go up and the complexity, I mean, and usually the complexity of the business also increases, then I think the value of their work increases as well. And, it, and also because, and also where the markets are, the companies operating in. Yeah. Uh, countries like Indonesia and Vietnam, where they have um, uh, poorer corporate governance culture, um, looser financing, financial reporting rules, uh, I think the value of the FDD really, really goes, goes up because you, mm. you then have, you, I mean, the FDD provider usually engage local on the ground teams to give a very, very on the ground view of, uh, of I mean, the true out, finish out of the company. So yeah, I, I, I'm very interested to hear what, uh, what Yong Chung and Evelyn thinks about this. Yeah. And so I, I think, uh, you know, in, in terms of the price, uh, how we think, uh, how I think about it is, is more about, uh, you know, uh, going back to our prior point on uh, how much DD uh, should we actually do, right? Mm. So uh, how I think about it is that we first uh, kind of, you know, have in our mind, what are the, when we have a make or break assumption, we try to stage the uh, financial due diligence into a couple of stages. So first, uh, addressing the, the points that are a clear make or break. And uh, if those points are, you know, kind of uh, continues, our, our hypothesis continues to be validated, then we can move into uh, the next level of detail. Uh, and if, if it comes to a point where we realize that, hey, actually, you know, uh, all the hypotheses that we initially uh, prepared for um, actually do not stack up, then uh, we, we also don't want to uh, bother the founders to do the, the, uh, the, get to the nth level of detail uh, when we realize that we can't be able to invest. So we, we tend to uh, stage them as the first stage. Okay, everything clears, let's do it the second stage. Uh, and we, we prioritize the needs uh, accordingly so that doesn't take up too much of the founders' uh, time and bandwidth. Because ultimately their, their job is also to uh, be able to take the business to a niche stage of growth. And uh, fundraising is just uh, one a milestone for them to be able to uh, achieve the, the long-term growth. Yeah, so I, I think for us, right, probably we also need to, uh, other factors that we also need to consider is that, you know, uh, whether the company has actually done any um, uh, FTD before. So mm -hmm. if, if not, if it's the first time, then I think the, the amount of resources that needs to go to it is probably a lot more extensive as compared to, you know, a company who just raised like probably a year earlier who has done a similar FTD exercises. And you know a conversation with the past investors on you know what what 
what went wrong, what went right for the FDD. I think that's that's quite important as well. Because I think as Evelyn uh, alluded to, it will help to form the, the make or break hypothesis as well. Yeah, and especially when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, companies with like a uh, multi-market presence, you also have to consider, you know, which, which are the uh, markets that you want to focus more on. Yeah, if, you, if a market is only 5% of the whole business uh, from a revenue perspective, then probably you can just do a simple one or even forego it. Yeah, as long as that's, a, that's, that's like the, the core market mm. is, is enough, right? Yeah, so um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, roughly, yeah, a, a lot of the factors to consider, but I, I think FDD is definitely essential. Yeah. Okay, um, thank you. So I, I think we covered a lot, a lot of points around FDD now. So maybe it's time to look to, to some of the recent headlines in the, in the media. <laughs> um, I mean, there have been a lot of reports of, um, you know, publicly listed companies going rogue or, or, or I mean, I, I mean, turning out there was fraud in the numbers. I mean, I don't want to mention names here. We all know who they are. So I, I think what I want to bring out for discussion here is what can we learn from these board supervision failures? And can any of, any of these issues or areas of concern or, or problem or, or like internal control lapses be identified as early as the FDD stage? So we as investors can be aware of them, we fix them, or we just step away from the deal entirely because we, I mean, we think that the risk is too big. Um, to justify the potential return. So, I mean, uh, maybe maybe I'll start off with Evelyn here because she does the biggest deals here. <laughs> well, so, um, I, I guess, you know, uh, having good controls is a long and ongoing process. Uh, it's not, uh, it doesn't stop at having, uh, it doesn't stop at the time of our initial investment where, you know, maybe at the point of investment, uh, there is nothing wrong with the business from a financial controls perspective, but, uh, you know, something could also happen uh, along the way. So uh, I think as a, as a start, one very helpful thing is to uh, have very local teams and uh, have a good understanding of what's actually going on uh, on the ground. Um, so at least for us, we have 14 country offices and we spend a lot of time in local markets that we uh, would like to uh, invest uh, within, either by maybe flying there or you know, uh, having an actual on the ground office. Um, I think secondly is also uh, in terms of uh, having a, a kind of a very rough sniff test uh, on an ongoing basis, partially also to help uh, founders uh, understand, you know, because um, many a time they may not uh, realize that there are some uh, issues on some different uh, business divisions. Uh, so helping them also be that, that kind of on the ground uh, sense check of uh, what's uh, really going on. So for example, if we are seeing um, hyper-local business models, such as a uh, food delivery or, you know, a local um, travel business, we would expect uh, the geolocation of your MAU to have a very similar footprint to the cities in which they're generating revenue. And if there is a vast disconnect, then uh, we would try to understand why. But even just from a business uh, operations perspective, this could also be helpful uh, to the management and founding team to understand, hey, you know, these are other areas uh, that we could tap as levers of growth. Maybe there's a new pool of uh, users that have actually been using uh, our service that we haven't fully realized. So I think maybe the role of uh, us as an investor is also to ask the right questions and uh, trying to nudge uh, the teams, uh, you know, maybe the first layer management or even second layer management to, to think about uh, different parts of the business and have a good oversight. Yeah, um, so uh, probably from my side, right, I, I think it's quite important, you know, uh, you know, at the port level, especially when the company gets to a certain mature state, to really have a, 
you know, audit committee, risk committee, or, or compliance committee, there's many of like, you know, independent persons and, and uh, with the right expertise. Because I think um, like investors will contribute a, a certain angle of expertise, right? But I think from audit, risk, compliance perspective, you probably might need more specialized uh, talent. And I think that will help a lot in, you know, ensuring that the company have right controls and stuff like that. Um, and aside from this, I, I think the culture also plays a, a very important part, right? And this is this may be a bit uh, nuanced because it, it also has to uh, deal with, um, you know, the, the founders themselves, especially if it's the first generation founders, right? Because mm -hmm. I think when you have um, an obsessive uh, focus on growth at all costs, then I, I think that might, you know, really change the DNA of the company and that might lead to certain cases to which, um, like Joseph uh, just, just mentioned, right? Yeah, so I, I think the culture part is also very important because I think from the top really sets uh, the way the, the on-the-ground guys uh, actually execute. Yeah, and then I, I think as investors, um, I mean, there's certainly a lot of ways that uh, we can help, right? But I think, you know, uh, one of the main things is to really build a relationship with the, the middle layer management. Yeah, because like top management, uh, the C-suite, they, they know a lot of stuff and all this, but I think sometimes you need some on-the-ground uh, insights. And I think that's only that's that's the only the only part we can get is really from the middle management or some of the on the ground guys which interact with. Uh, for for companies that are more uh, consumer facing, you can also do mystery shopping from time to time and all this just to have a sense of you know, uh, where 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 the where the company direction is actually going, right? Yeah, and I think even in the FDD phase, um, you can also potentially expose um, uh, potential fraud risk. Uh, yeah, so so like you know, especially when it comes to the I mean, aside from the FAD side, there's also the operational data due diligence, right? Uh, going very deep, you know, not just not just looking at the trends analysis and stuff like that, but, you know, uh, if it's an e-commerce player, you, you can look at things like, you know, uh, user registration in the time period, right? So, um, I mean, you would naturally assume the bulk registration to be during the daytime and all this. If there's a spike at yeah, around yeah. 4 a.m., you know, something is, something is wrong already, right? Yeah. So... I think it's all these kind of things that you need to pick out. Uh, yeah, and you know, um, if they are delivering goods, are they to different? And if that's the case, you know, the issue, you can look at underlying verse and in the returns um, to see, you know, what, what went wrong, what went right, stuff like that. Yeah, so I, I think at the SDG stage, you can actually uncover a, a lot of things. Uh, ultimately, it's, it's, a, it's a mix of, you know, um, art and science to determine this reflect are really correct or not. Yeah. Yep. Thank so, you. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Yongchun. And I think Don has maybe some real life experiences to share about <laughs> uncovering certain reflects during the FDD, and re which might indicate fraud or which might indicate errors. Systematic yeah. errors. So yes, it yeah. could be system. Yeah. So th thanks for that. I, I, I'm, you know, some of the public cases. What one of the public cases? I actually go and um, um, look at a public case of what what have they been reporting in the past, and why did it take so long for the regulatory supervision to find out? It's quite interesting that I would just, you know, wear my FDB hat and look at the publicly disclosed financial and which I found, oh, actually it, 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 there are indicators of irregularities already. So if I trace back the thought process, usually the detection of financial irregularity, I, there are two general approaches to it. The first approach is because it's a sand check. 
like what maybe that's what Evelyn, Evelyn say the SNP test. So there are certain expectation already of certain KPI. For example, you have a restaurant, you know they can serve maybe 500 people a day. And then what is the revenue profile? So, so some of the um, broad number. So uh, or for example, when you are in, um, let's say a digital space, you're using an app to sell your goods. Most of your marketing expenses should buy via the digital marketing. And then you shouldn't have any accrual for your digital expenses. If you have a huge amount on the balance sheet for digital marketing accrual, something quite wrong, right? So, so some of these, these like sense check or marketing fine. So these are sense check, which are industry specific. There are those which are um, beyond the sense check, which are intuition, right? There are well-defined methodology as well in order to catch very specific uh, irregularities. So um, there are many of them, but maybe I just, I just mentioned one is a round tripping. This is um, a worry, not because of any of you always suspect bad intention, but because when you are uh, investing in an early stage with a promise to grow, whether you're losing ten dollars on a billion dollars revenue or ten dollars or a hundred on a hundred dollar revenue makes a big difference whether you decide to go with a company or not. So uh, detection of round tripping typically uh, uh, for for us when 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 we assess a company and see that, that the company probably worth assessing whether there is a sign of round tripping, we look at a cash tracing. And the cash tracing involves a very disciplined and rigorous scrub through your the receivable, through the payable, to make sure that the name there exists. For example, if um, let's say you, you, you open an F&B and you have a payable for cement, is, it doesn't make sense, or have a payable for other services. Or when we talk to the accountant, the accountant say, oh, we are unable to generate an AR ledger by customer maybe uh, because we only look at them in group. AR and AP can never be in group. It has to be name specific. So some of those like um, uh, when we, yeah, so we have specific uh, techniques in place to detect round tripping in order to see whether there are evidence of cash being both recognized as revenue and a cost and inflating it, usually is, um, it will show itself somewhere. Most of the time, it will be in the other accrual, other payable, or some weird receivable. Or you notice unusual trend in the costs because there are just some costs that doesn't make sense. Or, or you will notice things like um, the company keep buying new equipment, even though the current facilities are being underutilized. So there are very specific techniques on a specific topic that are um, based on an assessment of the industry and the geographical area that company operate in. I won't name which one. And there are generic KPI, benchmark, and sense For example, I know, let's say take Vietnam. I am a, like, when we do a tech consumer, it's easy because I'm a consumer, I can do my kick the tire due diligence as well. If I know that certain e-commerce platform give out $300 voucher in three uh, 100,000 coupon, right? Then I know that your new customer acquisition cost cannot be less than that amount. So, so, so understanding, um, it, it is a mix of um, baseline techniques that always can be done if it touch on a certain sector, plus a street smart or adaptive when it touch the region and the sector as well. Thank you, Lord. That was very interesting. And it reminds me of a book I read 
um, a long time ago by Philip Fisher. This is what he calls scuttlebutt. Basically, in other words, you gossip with people, right? And you gossip with people, you find interesting tidbits of intel. And that interesting tidbits of intel lead you to breadcrumbs that help you identify a bigger issue. And, and, and also alluding to Yong Chen's point on building a good relationship with the management, mm. a bulk of the scuttlebutt actually comes from people that are not at the top. They're actually in the middle, middle ranks of the company or even the rank and file, the frontline employees. Those people actually know more than the top management sometimes. And I like to go to these people and just have casual chats with them and, and to get to, to kind of corroborate founder stories, and I'll say stories, with what is really happening on the ground. Right? And, and then you can actually trace and really zoom in on certain issues. So yeah, um, we, have, we have like last five minutes left for, for today's episode. And, and I think I'll, I'll dedicate the last five minutes to, to AI. So oh. uh, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, Dawn is already going ah here. So um, <laughs> as investors, I think we, we like to invest. I mean, we always like to invest in something that's game changing or putting a quantum step change, right? In, in value creation. And AI always seems to be that answer. But I think the challenge for us investors is we are not data scientists. I, 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 I'm not wrong, right? We're all not data scientists here. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we, I think as investors, at least for me, I find it hard to, to tell the difference whether there's AI or is this just robotic process automation? Is it machine learning? Is there any deep learning? I don't think there's any deep learning in this region. Um, so, I mean, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I, I think that's challenging, at least from that's the point of view. And I'd like to hear from my peers here as well. Uh, Yongcheng, you want to go first or Yifling? Okay, I, I can go first. Yeah, I, I think for us, like, we, we, we tend to invest in sectors that uh, we only understand. So, uh, yeah, so I think AI staff and all this, uh, I mean, we, although we do have the mandate to cover them, but we, we don't really um, actively cover this space because, like, um, I think one is also a lack of expertise. Yeah, and I think the other is that we also feel that the sectors is so so not that uh, mature at this uh, point in time, right? Especially uh, since we we have huge presence in China, we can compare the ecosystems in in both markets, and it it really paints a very stark difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I I think it's very important to understand, uh, to invest in things that uh, you you can understand. If not, right, you know, when the company grows, the the amount of value add that the investor can bring actually uh, diminishes uh, greatly over time. Yeah, and I, I mean, even in certain sectors, you know, you often have like say that, oh, uh, like personalized this uh, uh, AI ML algorithm to run certain backend stuff. Then when you speak to uh, investors who are really experienced in, the, in this particular verticals, then they will tell you that, oh, it could probably be, be all bullshit. The amount of um, personalization that you can, you can achieve is actually quite easy. So the technical barriers of entry may not be as high as you think. Yeah, so I, I think for us, like we tend to, you know, uh, throughout all these uh, funky marketing uh, slogans that they use when they try to, when um, when uh, when it comes to pitches, and to really look at the fundamentals and the core business model to see whether that makes sense or not, and whether you know uh, that business model is sustainable even five to ten years down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I agree, and I think uh, you know, at least uh, in my experience, uh, about. Uh, a, a meaningful uh, part of our team are actually a uh, comprise of uh, operating experts. Uh, so uh, basically, guys who have worked in the field, they could be uh, you know CTOs. They could be they could have, uh, for example, uh, specific uh, expertise and experience in either machine learning or you know in some other verticals like say life sciences, which require very uh, specific understanding of which molecules uh, and which techniques are actually uh, at the uh, forefront of technology today. 
So uh, just being uh, as part, given that we only have one fund globally, it's helpful that we could bring in uh, our colleagues from other uh, country offices who have uh, that set of uh, expertise if we don't necessarily have it uh, within the local country uh, office. And I really agree with uh, Yongchun's uh, earlier point that, you know, when we, uh, when we first invest in a business, uh, what would make a real difference in the long term is whether we have the real expertise and be able to help them drive a long-term growth. So sometimes it's also being honest with ourselves to say, actually, this is something that, uh, you know, uh, I'm only providing capital for and hoping that they would get there. Or is this something that I actually understand? Maybe I can make uh, the correct client introductions, the correct, uh, the correct M&A, uh, identify the correct M&A opportunities, uh, kind of new product areas that we need to bolster in order to take us uh, to the next level. So as much as it is, uh, you know, each fundraising round is the opportunity for us as investors to uh, support uh, the founders' growth. It is also equally uh, in the founders' uh, interest and for, for them to decide which investors they would like to take to the table for a long-term partnership um, and who they can be, uh, who can be alongside them. Yes, in the good times, but really also in the bad times. Thank you, uh, Yifilin and Yongchen. And I think I'll, I'll let Dawn wrap this up then. Um, she, at least she has some, some technical knowledge in the space, uh, <laughs> at least compared to me. So maybe I'll interesting yeah. to hear the thoughts, yeah. It's, it's interesting when you bring up like, AI, machine learning, RPA, everything in the same breath, because that's what everybody does. And I can say that um, quite, a, quite a few of us like, um, do not honestly know the difference between all of them. So in fact, just last week, uh, a friend asked me, what is the difference between AI and machine learning? So uh, when, 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 when is, and then is it really difficult? Con concept wise, I think AI is just the bracket of everything when you try to teach the machine to think and to think co cognitive concepts. Machine learning is applying that intelligence to learn how to do things. Deep learning is doing it with deeper meaning a lot more data. And fuzzy logic is just one of the techniques that you use in statistical learning to, to derive the role. But one of my favorite saying, one of my favorite quote is, all models work perfectly until they fail. So the machine or the model only work until, when, uh, you know, up to when it's trained and or when up to the threshold. And as we, the, the way we make decisions has changed ourselves. 10 years ago, what, what we buy is different from what we buy nowadays. So for anything that has a machine learning element to it, we need to make sure that it is um, continuously updated. There are techniques in it to make sure that the model output is within the correct tolerance and I'll leave it to the expert. What I usually, when, when I look at all the um, company that, that, that supposedly has a huge tech element, you know, tech company attracts a lot of better valuation than brick and mortar. I'll, I'll, I'll tend to look at and say, um, is it an enabler for you to do things better or is it the only thing you sell? Right, um, I, I'm not an expert in, in understanding whether or not this is, if, if this is the only thing that a company sell, i.e. the technology is the only thing that they get money from, I would say, okay, get a technology religious guy because I'm not the right person. But if, but if it's the tech is the enabler, for example, you build an app that become an ecosystem and you put things together and you cross-fertilize. You, you get deepening the funnel by getting people on the app and keep the money circulating within your system without ever going out. Therefore, you get an arbitrage working. Ah, okay, I can help you with that. 
because that is a financial due diligence. So I think when it is, we need to make that distinction because when it's an enabler, it's a question becomes scalability. If you have a level 11 sale with your system crash, what is your, your core bandwidth? What is your upgrade? Are your data center far enough for each other in case you'll be hit by a tsunami, you know? So all these are the operational guys. Financial people will say, okay, you got this XYZ product vertical. How are your database, your, how do you build your data center? And tell me, how do you pull it to get your revenue, right? How do you measure MAU engagement, persistency, um, uh, activity, unit economic? Ah, this is FED. Working capital, how do you track? Imagine you and I have an e-wallet. Your money, my money, everything mixed together. How do you track? How do you know? I know my money is still there. Give me proof. Yeah. So all these are the, you see, it's, it's, I think business are getting complex and it's more exciting and technology makes it very interesting. But, and it, it kind of changed the way we look at diligence as well. Yeah, thank you, Don. Yeah, and, and the world is changing rapidly. So I think as investors and also uh, FDD professionals, we always have to constantly evolve and adapt with the new realities. Um, and with that, I'd like to thank um, everyone here for their time. Uh, I've learned a few things myself. I hope everyone here has taken away a few things from the episode as well. And I hope our audience uh, have learned a few things as well. Um, and and look forward to the next one. Maybe this, if there is the next one. So, <laughs> uh, so this is this is like a MVP. Uh, in, mm. in startup parlance, uh, MVP. If, if there's a good, good yeah. uh, response, then maybe we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do this more often. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. I Thank learned you. a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.